I'm recording this two hours before I'm supposed to publish this episode. It's been a busy week, lots of deadlines, lots of work. My to-do list looks more like a wish list. I wish I had more time to do all these things that I'm supposed to do. Now, is it possible for busy, busy Christians to have a vibrant prayer life? Or is that only for monks in monasteries of the past? Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Faith Life's free book for the month of April, The Possibility of Prayer, Finding Stillness with God in a Restless World by John Stark. 188 pages published by InterVarsity Press in February 2020. The list price is uh, $15.99 and uh, right now, uh, at the time of this recording, it's offered for only $2.99. for this book is a fantastic deal and there is not much that can beat it except for free and it is free for this month and this month only in faith life. So, uh, who is John Stark? According to Ligonier Ministries, okay, Ligonier Ministries, John Stark is the lead pastor of All Souls Church, New York City, and an editor for the Gospel Coalition. But when I went to the Gospel Coalition, he is the pastor of preaching at Apostles Church in New York City. So, is All Souls Church the same as Apostles Church? Or is he the pastor of two separate churches? I didn't know, so I decided to fly over to New York City to visit the two churches for myself and investigate this matter for myself because of you listeners. Then I remembered I have the internet, the indispensable tool for online detectives investigating anything from airline crashes to war crimes. So anyways, I fired up dear old Google and searched for All Souls Church New York City. And I got the following. I quote, As a community, we work to create an anti-racist and LGBTQIA plus affirming congregation, taking action on issues like immigration, climate change, voting rights, and poverty and hunger. And that's not all because there's also a link in this church's website, quote unquote church, church's website to Buddhism <laughs> and mindfulness. Okay, I have obviously got the wrong place and I soon discovered that New York City has an All Souls Church. It also has All Souls Christian Church. Why is this getting so confusing now? <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I found John Stark's Facebook page and he has kindly updated it so that it he tells us the, 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 the updated information. He is currently the lead pastor at Apostles Church Uptown, which I also verified in that church website. And uh, he says here that he was the former lead pastor at All Souls Church. I presume it's the Christian church, not the non-Christian church, because if not, then John Stark has a great story to tell because that other non-church is an LGBTQIA plus affirming congregation and has a, a link to Buddhism. Anyways, uh, he is the, that is John Stark's Facebook page and I think all this serves as a lesson to everyone 
that we should always check what you read online. Some information is just not updated. And secondly, Ligonier Ministries is not always right. Now, I'm sure you're getting a bit restless for me to get to today's book review, and you want me to quickly get to the point. But what if the point of this book is to slow down, take a deep breath, and just wait for the point to arrive? <laughs> the point of the book, well, let's, let's hear from John Stark on what this book is about and how he has arranged this book. I quote, a vibrant prayer life is possible for you. I know it may not seem this way, but the whole thing is rigged for triumph. That doesn't mean that prayer will be easy or comfortable. It won't. In fact, we should prepare for the long, slow haul of discomfort, confusion, and frustration laced with joy, love, stability, and fullness. They aren't a few techniques merely to pick up so that next week the struggle for prayer will be over. Instead, there are realities that we need to grasp that lead to pathways, rather than techniques, toward intimacy with God. These realities, like the incarnation of Christ, our participation in Christ's exalted status, and His participation in our troubled and lowly place, rearrange how we think about ourselves, God, and the people and the world around us. End quote. So the realities we need to grasp are covered in part one of the book titled The Possibility of Prayer. And this uh, part one consists of six chapters and they are the impossibility of the impossibility of prayer. Okay, that's chapter one. The places of prayer, the invitation of prayer, number four, Outgrowing the reactionary heart, number five, pain and prayer, number six, waiting and praying. Now, after understanding these realities, Stark introduces us to the pathways toward intimacy with God. He titles this second half the practice of prayer, which consists of another six chapters, and they are number seven, communion, number eight, meditation, number nine, solitude, Number 10, fasting and feasting. Number 11, Sabbath resting. And last but not least, corporate worship. So those are the 12 chapters of this book. Now, normally when I uh, do this review, I pick a chapter to share with you so that you know what to expect from the book. And sometimes I pick the first chapter. Other times I pick a favorite. Now, for today's book, I had a real hard time choosing because when I read one chapter, I think in my head, oh, this is good. I'll pick this one to share. Then I read the next chapter, and then I think, this is a great chapter. This is better than the last one I read. And then it keeps going on for every chapter that I read. Now, this is a good sign <laughs> that this is a good book. And uh, let, let's listen to how Stark uh, describes prayer in the first chapter. Okay, So let me just um, share with you some of his writing here. I quote, Prayer is calling on God for His attention. We ask Him to turn away from the exploding stars and supernovas and give attention to our trouble. We ask Him to show us mercy. Why would we think this is a good idea? End quote. 
<laughs> now, that last question, when I read it, it made me stop. And I was thinking, why would we think that it is a good idea to call God's attention on ourselves? We are sinners. He is holy. <laughs> I mean, it's like we don't go walking into the savannah calling the lion, Hey, lion, it's me here. Come and see me. <laughs> because the lion is the predator and we are dinner. <laughs> so it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I never thought about it that way, you see. In prayer, we call God's attention to us. And did we ever stop to think about a universe where a great God listens to man? Isn't it? I mean, think about it. There are so many possible universes out there. I mean, you have, just for fun, you have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Star Trek Universe, the Atheist Universe, and many other man-made fictional universes with their own set of rules. Now, when we think about this universe, this reality that we're living in, what makes it possible for us to even pray? I mean, the rules that are in place, the things that must be true in order for us to pray. I mean, one of them, like I just mentioned, is that we, we presume that God listens to us. We presume that He is benevolent towards us. We presume that He, can, he, he, he cares enough to do something with our prayer. So I think that it's quite nice that this uh, first part, he actually calls attention to these realities that sometimes we do take for granted. And... Um, I love the way he puts it. Like I said, I mean, the, the, the question is, why would we think it's a good idea for us to call, a, to call on God to get his attention? <laughs> and uh, let's see, there's another one. Uh, Stark also gives this, uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, passage, this, uh, this text, and uh, again, poses a question to us. All right, let us uh, think about it. I quote, Our modern world often sees our neighbors, relationships, marriages, religion, family, and civic engagements as enhancements, like a gym membership to enhance bodily health. Things that previous societies might have seen as obligations, we see as enhancements. They are meant to add and benefit, but the minute they begin to require sacrifice, become difficult, or challenge our assumptions, we move on. They aren't enhancing anymore. Many of us see God like that. And so we think of prayer too as an enhancement. But if we take the posture characteristic of what the New Testament calls us toward, poor and needy for Him, then our prayers will begin to take a deeper turn. End quote. So there's so many things to unpack even in this passage that I've read here. And it's something that Stark unpacks in various parts of the book, not just that this chapter that I quoted, but also coming out in other parts. So, I mean, I ask you the question, do you see prayer as an enhancement? Maybe something optional that helps you to be more spiritual. Something that the pastor says that sounds like read the Bible a bit more, like be more healthy, uh, it's an option, you know, that's what he said. But if you try it and it doesn't work, so you conclude that eh, prayer is really not for you. Or you pray, but you don't expect a deeply satisfying prayer life. It's like you pray over the food, you say grace, uh, uh, dear Lord, please bless the food. Uh, thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there is, do, should we expect to have a satisfying, a vibrant, you know, his words, a vibrant prayer life. 
then if we see it as enhancement, then can you see that that posture, okay, that posture we adopted is different from what Stark describes. Stark in this chapter, he, he argues convincingly that prayer comes from a posture of spiritual poverty. It's like the hymn, I need thee every hour, every hour I need thee. So he says that, again, he quotes Bible passages and shows us that it comes from a point, from a place of neediness that we come to God. And uh, Stark said, I quote, okay, there's more food for thought. Uh, things that previous societies might have seen as obligations, we see as enhancements, end quote. So is it right, I mean, I'm asking you, to see prayer as an obligation? Do you, do you want to read a book that increases your obligation, <laughs> that increases perhaps your guilt and burden? I mean, is that what this book is about? And to answer your 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 thoughts over here to answer the question that I posed. Let me read an endorsement. Let me read an endorsement from Chuck De Groot, uh, the Professor of Pastoral Care and Christian Spirit Spirituality at Western Theological Seminary. He wrote an endorsement for this book. Let me quote. The possibility of prayer is beautiful and deeply counter-cultural. John isn't asking us to layer another obligation on top of our lives, but inviting us to a fundamental reorientation rooted in God's presence. Because John pastors a busy people in a busy city, he knows the cultural obstacles and the existential hurdles. But this is a profoundly hopeful and eminently practical book. What a gift this is to all of us. End quote. So that is a fantastic endorsement. And I must say that I think it's a very accurate one. Uh, uh, John Stark pastors to, to people in New York City. And the way he puts uh, his uh, writing uh, down is very uh, acceptable, um, very easy to, to be read by people who, who live very busy lives. And, and anyway, I'll just continue with the review. I get, a, I get a feeling as I read this book that uh, John Stark is a guy who likes plot twists, okay? Because in some chapters, he brings me down this path and I think I know where he is going because I've read a lot of prayer books. I kind of know, uh, I mean, the Bible passages about prayer. But then suddenly, he just goes off and shows me something I already know, but in a new light. So there is surprise. There's a bit of a plot twist. So let me give you an example, okay? When you see a chapter titled, The Places of Prayer, The Places of Prayer, what do you think the chapter will be about? And not only that, when you read it, and then uh, John Stark here explains, okay, you read the passage where he's explaining what Jesus meant by a prayer closet, okay, a place that you pray, places of prayer, prayer closet, places a place where you pray. Then after describing that, uh, Stark writes, I quote, Maybe early mornings feel impossible. You work late or you're a morning monster, and for the sake of neighborly welfare, you wonder if evening prayers are better. But let me give witness to what I have seen. Many a friend has sought to pray later in the day because mornings seem so hard, but they never sustain any regular habit of it. I'm sure there are any number of reasons why they didn't keep up with a regular afternoon prayer life. But I imagine one of the most common was that once the day began, it was hard to pause the momentum of efficiency 
and productivity for stillness. To this I say, I, not the Lord, it may be wise to make your time of prayer in the mornings after all. End quote. So a bit of humor, a bit of wit, and um, something that I can appreciate that I, not the Lord, for those who are more biblical verse, uh, biblically versed. So it's, uh, anyway, I like how he writes. Now, the thing is that after you read this, he has explained what prayer closet is. He then talks about blocking off our mornings to pray. And I was expecting maybe he would then later tell us about how we should tell children to shush while mommy flips an apron over her head to pray. That's how Susanna Wesley did it. And the chapter is titled Places of Prayer. So that's what I expected. How else would you understand places of prayer? I thought it would be talking about my bedroom, my office, my church, my floor, uh, or down on my knees. But instead, Stark tells me in his chapter, the places of prayer are the burning bush where God meets Moses, the throne room of God where God meets Isaiah, the eternal communion of the Trinity, he tells me that the place of prayer is where Christ is at my right hand, Psalm 16, verse 8. Then he tells me that the place of prayer is where I, I am at Christ's right hand, Psalm 16, 11. And he tells us uh, what does it mean when Christ and I are at each other's right hand. So he explains a bit of what that means. So you see, it's very surprising because I thought I was going to a... Uh, the the a prayer closet and blocking off of time and how to make uh, make it happen. But instead, I'm led down this path where we see that, yay, indeed, these are the places of prayer. So it's not something that happens all the time in every chapter, but uh, there are enough uh, plot twists, I would say, that uh, it makes it a fun read. i give you another example of a surprise. But this one probably will only uh, show up after you've finished the book. Um, because uh, it's a surprise marked by its absence. <laughs> if you had to write, if you had to write a book on prayer, what Bible passage would you include? Let me give you a hint. Our Father in heaven. <laughs> we would include the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 15. Now, what does it say? For this, for this Christian book on prayer, that it doesn't expound the Lord's Prayer. It makes a slight mention of it, but it doesn't, make a, it doesn't build from it. Would you call it daringness or foolishness? Now, my take uh, is that if you're going to expound the Lord's Prayer, you should make sure it fits in the overall thesis of the book and not just make a... A mention for the sake of it or just because you have to take it in that uh, checklist of yours. I mean, if it doesn't fit, then leave it and rest your case, build your case on the other passages that fits better with your thesis. And this is what Stark did. He doesn't build his book on the Lord's Prayer, but that's okay because you can read J.I. Packer's book on it. Instead, Stark builds much of his book on the Psalms. 
So much so that I think he should one day write a devotion or commentary on the Psalms, maybe his favorite or a portion of it or whatever, because he really, really loves the Psalms. How much does he love it? Well, near the end of the book, he writes, I quote, I pray the Psalms at the end of the day because I want to go to bed with God's perspective on my day, that's ending, and with the hope that God has for tomorrow, end quote. Now, there is more that I want to share, even just from part one, but time is running out. But before I go into part two of the book, let me quickly quote some nice portions from the chapter titled, Overcoming the Reactionary Heart. Overcoming the Reactionary Heart. Because it strikes my heart, and perhaps it would strike yours. I quote, A reactionary life acts in response to what happens rather than out of our inner lives. We often do not know how to handle what the world throws at us. We simply react. When others hurt us, we react with anger, bitterness, and resentment, moving us to hurt back or pass the pain down the line to someone else. End quote. He uh, Stark then later writes, I quote, A Christian who wants to grow out of a reactionary life and into an enriched soul and spirit must learn to pray the Psalms, end quote. See, the Psalms again. He really, really loves the Psalms. But the point in this chapter is we should look at prayer life as, uh, as he says, uh, God's slow, quiet work. So that when life happens, when life just hits you, all right, our response should be like that of a Zen master. Wait, scratch that. Why do people think of Zen master? I mean, I mean, this idea of a serene master who is unfazed by the things that happen around him. Now, our response should be greater, more powerful than a Zen master. I mean, people should be saying we should, we should handle life like a Christian saint. Why? Because according to John Stark, the Christian saint lives in a knowledge of a divine reality. And if we can grasp that reality, then our, our, our life, our prayer life actually exudes, not just in that uh, 10, 20, 30 minutes of prayer, but also through the, the rest of the time. Yeah? So we, we, we come out with a serenity of a Christian saint. Um, now, um, I, I want to say a few things about the second part of the book, which is the practice of prayer. Again, wonderful things over here. There's so many things that I learned. Um, Whereas in the first part of the book, we, we grasp these realities which he describes. Now, the reason why we, we want to see these realities, we want to learn these realities, is so that we can know the pathways toward intimacy with God. Okay, so that is part two, the pathways. Now, it does look like techniques, but uh, Stark distances himself away from the idea of techniques. It's not a how-to book. He doesn't want to us to read it that way. He prefers to talk about them as rhythms. I quote, the, the practice of prayer consists of primary rhythms, communion, meditation, and solitude, and secondary rhythms, Sabbath resting, fasting and feasting, and corporate worship. He later writes, our personal times of communion, meditation, and solitude are enhanced by the regular rhythms of Sabbath rest, fasting and feasting, and corporate worship. 
and our rhythms of Sabbath rest, fasting and feasting and corporate worship are deepened by our personal habits of communion, meditation and solitude. So you see, you have these two rhythms and then he shows us how the two of them work together. And um, I learned quite a lot about it. And I, I'm not trying to boast over here, but I thought that I have actually read enough books on prayer to not be surprised. I've read uh, J.I. Packer, uh, Tim Keller, E.M. Bounds, and a few others. And I, I've, and I love all those books. Um, but in this book, I was surprised that I learned new things. Okay, so I, it was very nice. Um, I didn't expect things that I didn't expect. For example, the connection between fasting and feasting. I thought this was a very interesting book because uh, he gives enough biblical support to. I mean, basically convinced me, almost convinced me, that there is a connection between fasting and feasting. And there's this idea that he puts that uh, after a day of fasting, and then we should end the day with a feast where you have people coming along and then you are fellowshipping and celebrating the joy of the Lord and, and all that. The things that I say almost convinced is because I always saw fasting as some kind of a Iron Man challenge, you know, that you, you grit your teeth and you just go through the day. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be uh, praying and all that, but I always see fasting as just this um, difficult task. But the way he describes it is like we do it because we're saving our appetite for a feast at the end. So, wow, that okay, that, that sounds interesting. I never thought about fasting and praying in that sense before. So um, there's also a very interesting uh, part on the chapter on the Sabbath rest. And I thought I knew enough about the Sabbath rest. So it's nice to see that uh, there's more that we can be squeezed over here. And I, I find how interesting how he connects prayer and Sabbath rest together. So again, those rhythms, those uh, three rhythms, uh, primary rhythms and secondary rhythms, he puts them together and uh, it is definitely got lots of things to think about and I, I, I just love reading uh, what he writes. Now overall, overall, as I just uh, finished the whole book, I want to give some uh, comments on, on his uh, writing. I don't know how to explain it, I'll try, but you can tell when you read this book that it was written by a reader. <laughs> I, I don't want to exaggerate this, and I don't want to give you the wrong idea, but when he quotes uh, Henri Nguyen, his writing somehow takes on that persona, uh, <laughs> more meditative, reflective. And when he quotes Robert Farah Capone, uh, which is a very witty writer, uh, his writing is more witty. I, 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 it could just be my impression, okay? Because maybe because of the proximity of the quote and the rest of his writing. So that made me associate the two together. And when I say this, I don't mean it in a bad way. On the contrary, what I'm trying to say is that his enthusiasm for these books and for the writers that he's quoting makes the whole book quite fun to read. Now listen to this, okay? And maybe uh, you will get a sense of what I'm trying to describe over here. I quote, Some years back, my wife and I discovered what is now one of our favorite books, The Supper of the Lamb by Robert Farah Capon. 
It's a culinary reflection on joy and life. It's a cookbook, <laughs> but it's also theology. Capon is funny, but also aims to rescue us from the dangers of mediocrity in our eating life, where there's so much pleasure to be found, even in cutting an onion. My wife and I found the book and we both wanted to read it. So over several evenings, we shared a bottle of wine and took turns reading it aloud to one another. We had so much fun. There were moments when we had to put our glasses down because we had to barely laugh or stop to consider and reread what was just said. Underline that, we would say. Those moments stirred intimacy and vibrancy in us. End quote. Now, what has this got to do with prayer? There's, there's a reason. But, <laughs> but then as you read through this book on prayer, and then you have passages like this, he loves reading, he's sharing how his wife enjoys the reading. And I have to say, I am, aren't you, aren't you curious, a tiniest bit curious, to want to read The Supper of the Lamb by Robert Farah Capone? <laughs> so that's why I say this, um, this book is nice because it's uh, written by a reader. And uh, when I read all these various books on prayer, okay, for myself, what I, I try to, to, to be is to be a better praying Christian. So with each book, <laughs> I'm personally hoping to learn a bit more, get inspired a bit more, maybe even guilt trip a bit more, so that I can have a more consistent and vibrant prayer life. Now, one feature of this book is that he doesn't tell us about the prayer life of Martin Luther or John Calvin or Susanna Wesley. Uh, not that I don't like to learn or enjoy learning from the past. But sometimes it takes a bit of effort to see how knights and castles and horses fits into my, my world. Yeah, I mean, with electricity running, with patrol cars and going to the office and working. So... It seems like it's two different worlds. I mean, I love reading those books. In those books, I love reading how they had their prayer life. And it's so much that's in common with what we have now. The thing about Stark's book here is that it is talking about the present. He uses examples. He, he is living in my world, in my time. So, for example, John Stark writes, I quote, Without that intentional recognition of God's presence, prayer can seem distant and impersonal. Without the conscious welcome of His company, since He has welcomed ours, communion can often feel about as intimate as email. End quote. Communion can often feel about as intimate as email. I get that. I get that prayer... If, you've, if you're comparing prayer with email, that is a bad thing because emailing, there is no intimacy. There is no, and I don't want to have a prayer life where it feels like I'm shooting an email to God. So in that sense, um, I mean, it's wonderful how uh, when he writes, I can relate. Um, it's, he's talking about me, and that's the... <laughs> That's the another wonderful uh, thing about this book. I, I do feel at times that this book was written for me. <laughs> because look, I struggle to have a vibrant prayer life. I love to read and, I, and get introduced to new books and authors. I've read enough books on prayer that I don't really miss an exposition on the Lord's Prayer. All 
I don't feel that I need to read another short biography or sketch on the prayer life of past saints. And there are many wonderful books that cover that. Also, I'm fairly techy, so I, I like gadgets and, and all sorts of technical uh, technology stuff. And this book was written for busy people, and I think I consider myself as a busy person. So, I want to find stillness with God in a restless world. That's the subtitle of this book. <laughs> so, I can't say at the moment, okay, just as I wrap up this uh, review, I can't say at the moment that this book has transformed my prayer life such that I'm more consistent or have a more vibrant prayer life. I, I don't dare say that. Um, at the same time, I don't think that all the prayer books that I've read has been a waste. I think that all, all of them play an important role in pushing me forward. Progress is slow. But an inch forward is still an inch forward. Um, to really, to really understand, to really know whether this uh, Starks book has made a, a transformation in my own uh, prayer life, uh, I would have to tell you that at the end of the year. At the end of the year, I want to do. I I, I always try to aim for a long term review to see what books actually made the deepest impact on me over the year. Because, you know, some books you read it and it feels very hot, burning hot, but then it just cools down after a while. Whereas some other books, I mean, you read it and maybe it's meh and so on, but then as you ponder and you chew on it, then it makes more sense and makes a lasting impact on you. So I'm going to do a long-term review at the end of the year and maybe by that time I'll tell you whether this book has actually given me uh, another inch <laughs> of a vibrant prayer life. If I could make one criticism, okay, and it's a mild criticism, the book doesn't have enough doxology. With the material he's dealing with, like for example, the places of prayer, you have the burning bush, the throne God, the thro throne room of God, the eternal communion of the Trinity, and, and so much more. As he goes through them, he could have just easily, easily gone into praise. Oh, how marvelous are you, O Lord. Just bursting with awe at the reality that he is describing. But he doesn't do that. In fact, for a book on prayer, he doesn't end the chapters with prayer. I, I should check, I guess, but again, I just said right, I only have two hours left before this thing uh, is supposed to be published, and now it's only one hour and a half left. Um, I didn't check, but I don't know whether John Stark actually wrote any written prayer in this book. I don't know him. I haven't heard his sermons. I haven't read any of his articles in Ligonier or in the Gospel Coalition. Shame on me. Yes, I know. Um, and this book is his very first book. And Oh, please, give us more. Anyway, is, is John Stark shy to share prayers? <laughs> because he doesn't. Um, on the other hand, is the reason why he doesn't share written prayers is because he doesn't want to influence us to a certain mold. I don't know. But maybe another reason is because the places where he could interject with doxology, for example, those places where he could, he doesn't. He doesn't put his own words, but instead he puts the psalmist's words. He quotes the psalms. And uh, maybe that serves as further room for thought that 
maybe we should reflect more on the Psalms, which is, I would say this is the, the, the bulk of this book actually. We should meditate more on the Psalms and from there, look at the realities that God offers to reveal to us and then the, and we get into the practice of the rhythms, the rhythms, the, the primary and secondary rhythms so that we go into, a, into the intimacy with God. To have that, to find that stillness with God in this restless world that all of us live in. The, this book, The Poss Possibility of Prayer, is uh, available in uh, Amazon Kindle for um, $2.99 uh, as of this recording date. It is also uh, available for free in uh, Faith Life for the month of April. I strongly recommend it and uh, I hope that you can let me know uh, whether you have enjoyed this book as much as I did or whether this book was truly written for me in mind. <laughs> this is a reading and reader's review of The Possibility of Prayer, Finding Stillness with God in a Restless World by John Stark. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more book reviews at www.readingandreaders.com. That's www.readingandreaders.com. And you can subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.